Romans 2, 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You, Lynn, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You may say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code of circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thank you, Dave. Why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 2. I have to say, as I was just kind of down here singing with you and listening to you sing like you were singing, there are... There are times when the people of God gather like this, that there is a special sense that God is very much at work among His people. And I'll just have to say I have that peculiar sense this morning that God is very much at work in His people, and I pray it's so this morning. The book of Romans has been called the greatest letter that's ever been written by man. It's been said that God continually changes the world by changing people through the book of Romans. But one thing that has never been said of the book of Romans is that it is an easy book. The book of Romans deals with some very difficult, challenging truths. One of the things I love about our church is that we are committed to preaching through the books of the Bible and therefore we come to sections like the last few weeks, that may not be the top of our list or that you may not read on the popular greeting cards, some of the verses that we've looked at the past few weeks, but it's the Word of God and we need to hear the truth of God's Word. So we're committed to preaching through books of the Bible like the book of Romans. So the book of Romans, just to remind you, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers in the city called Rome and he's writing... If you want to put a broad title or heading to the book of Romans, you could say that Paul is writing about the good news of the gospel. That the gospel message of Jesus Christ, of what Christ has done that we could never do on our own, of reconciling us to God, is very, very good news. Amen? But Paul, in a very systematic way, takes the first two, three chapters of the book of Romans 
and he declares that the gospel is only good news to those who realize their desperate need for it. So Paul deals with some very challenging and difficult truth in Romans 1, 18 through Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 20. And we were there a few weeks ago. Daniel guided us through a couple of those messages. We're going to be here a couple more weeks before we get to the end of chapter 3. And the point is Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus is incredibly good news. But the gospel is only good news to those who realize their desperate need of it. And he deals with some things that are difficult for us to hear and difficult for humanity to hear. Now let me just give you a little illustration about this for just a second. I want to tell you a story about a man who did a very strange thing. There was a man one time and he built a huge massive boat. In fact he called it an ark. Maybe you've heard that story before. And it wasn't strange necessarily that he was building a boat. What was strange about what he was doing is that he lived in the middle of the desert. And he built an ark and he built a boat and he said, I'm building this boat because the rains and the floods are coming. And the people of that day as they walked by the boat and they watched Noah build this boat day in and day out. Remember, they had never seen rain. And they had certainly never seen a flood. And they didn't live anywhere near water. So day in and day out they watched as Noah built and Noah preached. The New Testament says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And here's what Noah was preaching. This boat, this boat is really good news. In fact, this boat is going to be your only rescue, your only means of salvation because the judgment is coming, the flood is coming. If you know the story, you know day in and day out people would walk by the boat and I'm just imagining a little bit, they might be curious and they would look at that big ark and they would ask questions and maybe they would mill around the ark for a period of time and Noah kept saying, this ark is good news, it's good news, it's good news. Now listen, if you know the story, when the flood came, there was only eight people who chose to go inside the ark. And the point was, the ark was only good news to those who believed they needed it. For a hundred years, Noah said, the torrent, the floods, the rains are coming. And this ark is the only source of rescue. Not your life jacket, because you hadn't got one. Not your ability to swim, because nobody could swim, because they lived in the desert. Nothing is going to rescue you except this boat. And nobody believed him because they didn't think they needed the ark. Now the point of that story and how it applies to the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is declaring the beauty and the glory of the message of the gospel. But he takes three chapters at the beginning of this letter and his point is to declare who is in need of the gospel. 
He's, he's declaring, just like Noah, the only way the gospel is good news is when a person realizes their desperate need of it. So Paul declares here that God is righteous and God is holy and God is just. And the bad news is we're not because of our sin and our rebellion. And God in His righteousness is not passive or indifferent about our sin, right? Nobody appreciates a judge who sits on the bench and is passive or indifferent towards sin. God is never indifferent toward my sin or your sin. In fact, He is wrathful. We live in a state of the wrath of God. That's not capricious anger. That's not God pouting in the corner of heaven. That is a disposition of just wrath toward the sin and rebellion of mankind. And Paul says that is the state that every human being alive lives under apart from Jesus. The just wrath of God. The storms are coming, but there's an ark. That's the point of the book of Romans. Now, Paul deals with several groups of people in these chapters that we're looking at who might tend to think that for different reasons they're safe. They're okay. Paul deals in Romans 1.18, we dealt with this a couple weeks ago, he deals with the, the pagan, if you will, the immoral pagan who just denies the wrath of God altogether and suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness and lives this lifestyle in a suppression of the truth. And we looked at that the last couple weeks, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, win, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul is declaring, listen, the immoral, unrighteous pagan is in need of the gospel. And we would all say, that's right. And then Paul goes to Romans chapter 2 and he switches gears a little bit and he goes to the moral person. The person who lives by some type of ethical code that they have determined in their own sense in a, in a, in a way. And, and Paul says, listen... You who are moral and you who are living by some standard, don't you think you're saved because you don't even live up to your own standard, much less the standard of God's righteousness? He says in Romans 2.1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. In other words, the, mo the moment you make a moral decision or a moral distinction, he says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, you don't even practice the very same things. In other words, moral person who thinks you live by some law code of your own standing, he says, you are under the wrath of God and in desperate need of the gospel. It's tough stuff. And then Paul shifts gears and he comes to verse 17, and that's where we're going to be this morning, and he, he moves from the immoral pagan, if you will, and he, he moves from the moral person in general to a specific group of people, and he moves to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And Paul, as a Jew, is writing to both Greeks and Gentiles and Jews, and he's writing here and he's declaring, and you can hear his heart and his passion all through this letter, to his fellow countrymen, the Jew, is saying, you, even though you're the people of God, even though you've experienced the blessings of God, you are in desperate need of the gospel of Christ. Paul declares that, verse 17, he says, But you, if you call yourself a Jew, you like 
you're like kind of coming up under the perceived safety of that Jewish identity that you have. You, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God. Here's the reason Paul points out the Jewish people here, the people of Israel, the Hebrews. The, the word Jew was not meant in a derogatory way here at all. It was the word that came from the tribe of Judah. The word Jew is a shortened form of Judah. It was the... Is how the people of Israel were referred to in that day. Paul is focusing on the Jewish people because he knows if any people were tempted to think they were safe from the wrath of God, it would be the Jewish people. So he writes to a group of people who've experienced the immense blessings of God. The covenant people of God. They were entrusted with the scriptures. They produced the prophets. The Messiah came. Jesus is a Jew. And if any people could deceive themselves to thinking by their own accomplishments, watch, by their own upbringing, by everything that they were surrounded by, and deceive themselves to thinking they were safe, it was the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Paul's conclusion about the people of Israel whom he loved dearly and who we're going to see later in the book of Romans. God has a future for the nation of Israel. But here in chapter 2, Paul is declaring, verse 23, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking it. You don't keep the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Chapter 9, we're going to get there in Oh, I don't know, a few years probably of Romans. Uh, verse 31, Paul writes and he says, But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, it's called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the idea that something that I do, something that I can accomplish, some heritage that I have, Anything apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, by that, by that means, I can be right with God. And it's an illusion and it's a false deception. And Paul, man, I'm telling you, Paul is stripping the people of Israel and every person alive from any false notion by which we run to and we think we're safe. Anything but Jesus. There is one ark that saves from the flood that's coming. His name's Jesus. Paul says, he goes on here in verse 31, he says, But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Meaning, they believed that they could bridge the infinite gap between a righteous God and unrighteous men by their own attainment, by their own identity, by their own upbringing, all of that. And that's called self-righteousness. And I'm just going to tell you, the culture that we live in in East Tennessee, the Bible Belt religiously inclined culture, is dripping with the exact same kind of self-righteousness. So here's your big truth that we're going to look at this morning, and then we're going to, we're going to make some big, uh, draw some big ideas out of that. But the big truth basically is this this morning, is that the wrath of God is revealed against all self-righteousness. 
Paul's going to use the people of Israel as a perfect example of that. But the parallels are so stark and so distinct and so clear for us. And I want you to check out and think, okay, Paul's talking about a people somewhere out there. We're going to see at the end of this message how this applies directly to us right here in Bible Belt, East Tennessee, South. The wrath of God is revealed against all self-righteousness. Now, we're going to walk through these verses. We're going to pick up in verse 17. There's a lot here. Dave read a big section of Scripture this morning. We're not going to be able to go into detail on all these verses. Let's do our best. Pick it up in verse 17. I'm going to give you three or four big ideas give you some application statements, and then I think this will help us this morning. Let me just remind you as we walk through Romans together, I encourage you to be reading through Romans on your own. We, pro- we provided a reading plan. Our, our life groups are wrestling with some of these things. If you're not in a life group, great place to plug in. And then Wednesday night, we're having a blast on Wednesday night. It's called Behind the Message. If you're looking for a place to connect or uh, don't have a place yet, Wednesday night, 630 here, called Behind the Message. We'll go deeper in the Romans with the teaching pastor and a panel there. Pastor Jeremy leads that time. And here's the kicker. If you have a question in the book of Romans, man, which we all do, and there's some tough questions. We've even provided a, an email. It's called Behind the Message at tcbchurch.org. Get on there and send that question, and uh, we'll wrestle with that on Wednesday night. If you don't want to do that, just send all your tough questions to Pastor Daniel. He loves those things. He'll love them. So this morning, big truth is this. Wrath of God is revealed against all self-righteousness. Let me give you a few big ideas. Big idea number one is this, is the self-righteousness or the self-righteous trust in their heritage. What are some distinguishing marks of self-righteousness? Well, the first one is this, self-righteous trust in their heritage. Back to verse 17. Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, Paul's kind of tongue-in-cheek here, and he says, okay, to you who are really proud to call yourself a Jew. Again, derived from the tribe of Judah. The word Jew means here praise. That's what the word meant. He says, those of you who find this false safety in your identity as a Jew. Now, remember, when we talk about the people of Israel, we talk about the Jews, we're talking about a people who had unarguably or have a heritage like no other people on earth. That's true. We're talking about a people who were descendants of Abraham by faith. Abraham, God raised up one man and a a barren wife, Sarah. And from that barren wife, God miraculously birthed a nation, the nation of Israel. We're supernaturally brought into existence. They experienced a supernatural redemption from the nation of Egypt. You read through the book of Exodus, you see that. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says of the nation of Israel, And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel? There are a unique people in God's economy and God's plan and God's purpose. They were entrusted with the very words of God. Psalm 147 says, God has revealed his word to Jacob or Israel and his laws and his decrees to Israel. In other words, God has a particular purpose for the people of Israel. But what has happened over time, and Paul is exposing this, is this, is the glorious heritage of Israel had become a source of pride and a false hope of salvation for the Jewish people. They were proud of their Jewish heritage. 
If you want to see how proud they were of their, you could say it this way, their upbringing or their background, you can see how it became a source of national pride and even a uh, false hope for salvation. Let me, let me invite you, you can flip over to John chapter 8 really quick, or I'll just read these verses to you. I'm going to show you a quick event that happened in the life of Jesus. So Jesus, being a Jew, came and was declaring to the people of Israel, you're in need of the gospel, just like all the people. And that met with some severe opposition in his ministry, just like in Paul's ministry. John chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish religious leaders of the day who were looked at as being the man, the righteous ones. Jesus says, verse 32, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 33, they answered him, and they said, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, you will become free? Jesus comes back at him. This really turns into a heated debate here. Jesus says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. You don't even realize it, but you're a slave of your sin. You're, you're under the wrath of God because you think in your own self-righteousness you've earned standing before God because of your Jewishness. Verse 36, Jesus says, If the Son, speaking of Himself, sets you free, then you're free. So you need a Savior. Now watch. Verse 39. They answered Him and said, Abraham is our father. In other words, Jesus, don't you know we're the Jews? Don't you know we're the covenant people of Israel? We're the descendants of Abraham? And you're telling us we're enslaved to sin and need some kind of redemption that the Son will provide? What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus, not known for mixing words and not known for trying to be politically correct, right? Comes back in verse 44 and he says this, you're of your father the devil. <laughs> Man. Since you want to talk about heritage, let me tell you, your heritage, you're of your father, the devil. And so is every person apart from Christ. He says, your will is to do your father's desire, your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for the truth. And you don't stand for the truth. And he just continues on. Verse 53, they come back to him and they says, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? You speak to us. You think you have more authority than Abraham? We are descendants of Abraham. The prophets died. And who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 53. Now watch this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am Next verse, just to let you know how serious this argument had become. And watch, how offensive it is to say to a self-righteous person, your self-righteousness profits you nothing and you are bankrupt before a holy God. You want to know how offensive that is to a self-righteous person? Verse 59, they pick up stones and they're ready to kill Jesus. Do you know what happens when you challenge someone in their own self-righteousness and say your religion and your upbringing and all your goodness is worthless before a holy God? Watch this. They just might crucify you. That's what they did to Jesus. 
Jesus and Paul agree that the self-righteous trust in their heritage as some false hope of salvation. That was the situation with the people of Israel. Secondly, give you this one a little quicker. Second big idea is this, and we see this in the text, that the self-righteous trust in their knowledge and what they know. Pick back up in verse 17 again. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God. If you write in your Bible, circle that little word rely. It's what it says in the ESV. The word rely means to rest upon, to find security. And by the way, in the Greek, it's in the present tense, which meant their ongoing disposition was they relied in their law keeping. They relied in their boasting before God in their Jewishness. They were relying, they were trusting, they were boasting in their knowledge. Verse 18, he says, and you boast that you know his will. The word will here translated literally means the will, the will of God. In other words, you boast that you know God's will. I mean, you boast that you know truth. You've been entrusted with the truth. You boast that you know about that. You approve what is excellent, verse 18, because you're instructed from the law. The word approve literally means the word discernment. It means to be able to tell right from wrong. It's the idea of being able to differ. It was a moral judgment. In other words, in this day, the people of Israel did have a moral compass. They had been entrusted with the Scripture. And Paul says you boast in the idea that you can tell the difference between right and wrong. Verse 19, he says, And if you're sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. These things were true of the people of Israel. God had called them to be a light, but here's what had happened. Their missionary call to be a light to point to the righteousness of God had become moral superiority, and they believed that they were more excellent and more superior to those that they were called to be a light to. And Paul says, you're trusting in what you know. You're trusting in this knowledge that you have been given. Then in verse 20, he gets even more specific and he says, Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. If you circle in your Bible, circle that word embodiment. Here's what Paul's saying. This is so critical. He says, what you have in the law, you have the word embodiment, which is the word form. The word form means an external structure, but nothing to the internal. In other words, you have the form of the law, you have the form of the righteousness of God, but it's done nothing to the internal. It's not transformed your soul. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy when he says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You got all the externals, but it's done nothing to your soul. By the way, that's true of all self-righteousness. Self-righteousness and in the flesh, the attempt to keep the law, the attempt to earn God's favor in our flesh may look good for a time on the outside, but apart from the transformation of the Spirit of God on the inside, we, leave, we are left unchanged. And you know how you know that? Paul goes on. He says, you know how you know you're self-righteous and everything is on the external and everything is outside, but there's been no internal repentance and no internal transformation? Verse 21. You then, you teach others. You're proud of what you know. He says, do you not teach yourself? 
In other words, there's a massive gap of hypocrisy in what you teach and what you say you believe and the life that you live. Paul says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? He's just going to pick out some examples here of their heart that was left unchanged. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Jesus exposed this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, you can hold out all these standards, but your heart's unchanged. In other words, you lust for after a woman in your heart. You're committing adultery because the heart is the issue. Your heart is left unchanged. He said, you who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? What does that mean? Evidently, the people of Israel had learned how to profit from that which they preached against. <laughs> we were preaching against idolatry. But evidently when they would rob the temples, they would take the, the loot from the temples. And they were preaching against this idolatry and then they would go sell it. It's like making profit from that which you stand against because your heart is left unchanged. And here's the point. Paul is saying this. Their reliance on the law was a false hope of salvation as evidenced by their hypocritical lives. In other words, they say one thing and their lives clearly evidence something else because there's been no internal transformation by the Spirit of God. You say one thing and your life reflects completely something else. But the people of Israel, they had the law. They knew the law. They'd been entrusted with the things of God. And somehow they believed merely by their possession of it. Man, I got that big Bible I carry around. I've been around the things of God. I've been brought up in the things of God. And somehow were deceived to think because of that they were safe. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller said it this way. The problem was not with the law itself. The law is good. The problem was with the heart. The problem was relying on the law, making what is moral into a system of salvation. The content of the law was fine, but by using the law as a way to eternal life leads only to death, unquote. So Paul, what's, what do you do with this? And you got to, again, you got to know that Paul loved his fellow countrymen, his Jewish brothers and sisters. But Paul is so concerned that they would see the message of the gospel as good news. He does whatever is necessary to say, here is your current situation. And the gospel is only good news to those who see their desperate need of it. And Paul says in Romans 2, 23, he says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. The standard that you think saves you becomes your judge because you fall infinitely short of the righteousness of God. Jesus, what did you have to say about this? John 5, 39, Jesus says to a group of Jewish leaders again, He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus says, it is these that testify about me. You missed it. So the self-righteous, the self-righteous that trust in their heritage, maybe our upbringing. Self-righteous trust in our knowledge, what we know or what we've been around. And then thirdly, and we'll do this one quick, the self-righteous trust in external religious accomplishments. Man, if the Jew were proud of their name and if the Jew were proud of the law and what they knew, the, the Jew were 
they were really proud of this thing called circumcision. In verse 25, Paul deals with this and he says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. This thing called circumcision for the Jew, it was the outward physical mark. It was a, a sign given to all Jewish men on their eighth day after birth. It was a, a, a sign of the covenant. It was an external mark of an internal reality. If you're a kid or a child here and you have no idea what circumcision is, you can ask your mom and dad when you get home. They'll be happy to tell you all about it. And if they don't know, you can come ask our family pastor, Pastor Paul. He'll tell you all about it. Circumcision was an outward physical mark. It was a sign, and it was given to the people of Israel to be an outward sign of an internal reality. Paul's going to argue here with the people of Israel that the outward sign is worthless without the internal transformation. But yet for the Jews, this outward sign had become the mark of their relationship with God. John Stott, a commentator, a preacher, he says this, To be sure, circumcision was a God-given sign and seal of His covenant with Israel, but it was not a magical ceremony or a charm. Yet the Jews had almost a superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. Rabbis in this day taught, for example, a circumcised man will never descend into hell. Circumcision was taught. Circumcision will deliver Israel from wrath or from Gehenna. They believe this, this outward sign of the covenant had become so elevated in their minds. It had become so revered as almost a superstitious thing that was somehow going to make them right with God. And Paul, again, to strip them bare, so to speak, and to reveal their place, says, you got to know your circumcision is of no value to you apart from the internal transformation that the gospel brings. No value. You say something like that to a Jewish man or woman in this day, they might crucify you. So Paul goes on, he says, he summarizes all this, for the sake of time, he says, verse 28, if you want to look there, he says, For no one, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. There's a lot of theology in these couple verses here, and we're going to press these out over the next few chapters in the book of Romans, so just kind of hang with me. He says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. The word Jew remembers, remembers the word praise. In other words, he's saying, No person is this praise to God who is merely one outwardly. It's not the issue of the outward. Paul says, Nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not about the outward. That's a symbol. Verse 29. But a Jew praise to God, one who is praised to God, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, it's something only the Spirit of God can do, not by the letter, not by the law. And His praise, the person who trusts, the person who has been transformed by the Spirit, by faith, His praise, that's a word play on the word Jew, by the way, His praise is not from man, but from God. 
And Paul, with the most love he can muster for his countrymen, the Jew, he says, your heritage is not a place of safety. Your law-keeping does not keep you safe. And your external right of circumcision does not keep you safe. You are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the point. So in all honesty this morning, okay, East Tennessee... Brothers and sisters, well, what do we do with this? <laughs> so maybe, maybe the conversations that you've been in, and maybe you're on either end of this conversation, goes something like this. This is a true story. It happened just a few weeks ago. I, I was with a friend, and I knew him fairly well. I didn't know him real well, but God had put his name on my list, and he was one of my three, and I, I really wanted to know where he stood before the Lord. And I, I kind of observed his life, and to be honest, it was one of those deals. I saw no fruit. I saw no evidence that he had been born again. So we go, and we sit over a cup of coffee, and he's from this area, and we're just kind of talking through. And, man, I said, listen, I, I just got to ask you, I, I've, I've been real concerned about your soul, concerned about your relationship with God. Have you, have you ever you ever been born again? Have you ever come to know God through Jesus Christ? And you might not be surprised that the conversation then begins to go something like this. Well, man, I grew up in church, man. I mean, I had an incredible upbringing. He started telling about his parents and all that had been invested in his parents and all that he had been around. And, and his first thing out of his mouth, of course I'm a Christian. And then he goes into all these details. He says, listen, for me, I... I, I just I pretty much live by the golden rule. I know that. I just try to do to others as they do to me. And, you know, that's just kind of the way I live my life. And as I look over my life, I see the blessings of God. And, and God has protected me from so much. I know God is with me. Yet no repentance. No fruit. Not even a claim to the finished work of Jesus. <laughs> and the conversation kind of goes on. And, I challenged him in some things, and when we got to the gospel and the message of the gospel of what Jesus Christ had done, watch this. The message of the gospel and what Jesus Christ had fully accomplished was to my friend not good news at all because in his self-righteousness he didn't need it. He didn't need it in his self-righteousness. See, our self-righteousness and what we want to boast in other than Jesus insulates us from the reality that a flood is coming and our only hope is the ark of Jesus Christ. It insulates us if we're not careful. And I'll just say this, I, I think the vast majority of the evangelism that you will do probably in our area is to the person who will say, sure, I'm a Christian, but there is no fruit, no evidence, no repentance, no faith, and man, they don't see the gospel as good news. And I'll just tell you, that's hard evangelism. But that's the message God has given us to share. And I'd even go a step further, I'd say, Many of us, even in this room this morning, are clinging to a false hope of our upbringing, our past, some moral accomplishment, our knowledge of Scripture, maybe our baptism, maybe some event that happened in the past. And if that's what you are relying on for your standing before God, it is a false hope. It's a false hope. Let me just kind of close with this. I'm 
Jesus, and the greatest teacher ever, as you know, Jesus tells a parable. And I'm just going to read this parable and make a couple comments, and then we're going to have a time of response. But So, Pastor Mike, I, I hear this that you're saying about this self-righteousness, and I'm not... I hear what it meant for the Jew, and I'm not even really sure what that looks like. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18. I'm just going to read a couple verses, and here's what he says, beginning in verse 9. Jesus told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What does self-righteousness look like according to Jesus? He says, and they viewed others with contempt. Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. So Jesus is going to take two people. He's going to take a Pharisee who everyone saw as the hero, the righteous one. And then he takes a tax collector who everyone saw as worthless. It says these two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. (laughs) I was praying this to himself. Here was his attitude toward God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. (laughs) By the way, self-righteousness is deeply comparative in nature. My self-righteousness is determined by how much better I am than somebody. I'll find somebody that I'm better than. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector and these adulterers and these unjust people. Verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. Twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is all about rehearsing personal accomplishments. Look what I did, Lord. Lord, look what I'm bringing to the table. Aren't you impressed? Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his chest, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's a man who came with nothing, who came empty-handed and threw himself on the mercy of God. And Jesus said, I tell you, verse 14, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. See, self-righteousness finds our security in other things besides the finished work of Jesus. Self-righteousness rehearses our own moral accomplishments. Self-righteousness has an internal sense of our moral superiority. Self-righteousness reduces God's righteousness to superficials. And self-righteousness underestimates the depth of our own personal sin and depravity. We're going to close with this and we'll move to a time of response. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls the self-righteous to repent of self-righteousness and to faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen.
I want to ask you in this room just for a moment. I want to ask you just maybe a little deal. I want you to just bow your head for a moment. And I'm in no way going to put pressure on anyone. I'm not going to try to tighten the screws on anyone. But I'm going to give you over the next moment or two, and then our team is going to lead us in a song. I'm going to give you an opportunity right there where you're seated to respond this morning. The message of the gospel is the good news that the infinite gap between a righteous God and unrighteous man, me, has been bridged by Jesus Christ. He alone is the ark of our salvation. But the gospel is only good news to you, brother and sister, when you realize your desperate need of a Savior. So if you're here this morning, and maybe for the first time in your life, you realize, I am lost. I'm in need. I have nothing to bring to the table. And I throw myself on the mercy of God. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus, save me. God, save me. I repent of my self-righteousness. I repent of my own accomplishments. And I turn to you in faith. If that's you this morning, right there where you're seated, I encourage you, call out to the Lord in faith. That's you this morning in just a few minutes after we sing. There's going to be a team of people that would love to meet with you, love to pray with you right through these doors to the left. There's an area called the hub. And after we sing this song, I'm going to invite you to go there and find someone that can pray with you and explain what it means to know Jesus this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for this truth. God, thank you for the message of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us see that the gospel is gloriously good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand now as our team leads us this morning.